Hello. Um, today we're going to be reading out of Hebrews 1, 3 through 4, 4 through 14, sorry. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my, to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are a work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God, I want to pray over everything that Grant has to say today. Please help it to be of your words so that it may touch the hearts of everyone in here. May your Holy Spirit be here in this place. And um, may the message that you have for each of us come to us. Thank you for bringing us all here together safely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Annabelle. There's just something good to hear the scripture read from a younger voice than mine. I appreciate you, Annabelle. Well, do you have your Bible open to the first chapter of Hebrews? Um, that's where we'll be for the foreseeable future. And I tell you, man, I am enjoying studying Hebrews. Um, and Hebrews is a lot like this on one level, um, this text is pretty simple. Jesus is superior to the angels. Um, everybody in? Like, are we all agree with that? Okay, well, that's great. Let's go home. Um, but let's remember who the original audience was to this uh, letter. Um, these, this is written to Jewish Christians in danger of drifting away from faith and into legalism. You know, it is probably one of the truest things about us that when we make positive change in our life of any kind, and then things get difficult, our most natural reaction is to go back, to pick up old habits. And that is true even with huge decisions like a decision to follow Jesus. And if you could just remember for a moment, these are people who have been doing Jewish life the Jewish way for a Jewish eternity, family generation upon generation, keeping a kosher kitchen, remembering the festivals, keeping a Sabbath, 
looking down on Gentiles. Like, you know, all of those things that we do. And then they meet the Jewish Messiah. And it was their expectation that they would probably double down. Now the whole world has to keep a kosher kitchen. Now that the Messiah is here, everybody is going to follow our rules. And the New Testament does something entirely different that says those rules were great, but they weren't enough. Let's introduce you to abundant, eternal life in the sun. Like, let's have at it with relationship with God that is available for everybody, no matter whether you like pork sandwiches or not. And that was a mind-blowing thing. And so you think about that teaching working its way through the early church and Jewish people sitting with Gentiles in a church service, in a house church, and just kind of going, I know, I know, I just don't like it. It's just uncomfortable. I've heard, I know, Pastor James in Jerusalem said it, and Peter came and did a great seminar, and Paul's been through here. We know, we know, we know. It just is easier to go back to the way we always did things. So this letter is largely written to people who are in real danger of returning. Sort of, it reminds you of their great, 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 great ancestors who leave Egypt and then go, you know what, though? In Egypt, at least we had onions. <laughs> the big idea of Hebrews is very much a way to avoid drifting back, returning to self-centeredness, returning to legalism. And over and over, the book is going to warn us about not turning back, not going back. And look, let's be honest. Were you more legalistic in your 20s if you're a little older as a Christian? I know I was. I always say that, and I stole this line, but when I was like 20 years old, there were 150 things I'd fight you over. Now there might be, I wouldn't fight you over anything, but there might be eight things that are tent poles to my faith, they're all about Jesus. And there's, uh, as we shed legalism, learn what's important, I think that kind of is part of the Christian maturity process. But I'll tell you, people start talking and it's pretty easy for me to go back to a legalistic mindset. So if a thorough theological argument that pro Fesses Jesus so clear. How could you be? Do you think we're going to be legalists in the throne room of God? Do you think we're going to be in witnessing the glory of God and go, well, I don't know if I'm in yet. What do you believe about a literal hell? You know what I mean? Are we going to go, hey, I, well, I don't know. Are we Trinitarian around here? No, rather, we're going to fall on our face and sing holy, holy, holy. And we'll find out we were right about some things. We'll probably also find out we were wrong about some things. And I don't think we're going to care. I think we're going to be pretty joyful. So the anecdote to that discouragement that leads you backwards is to see Jesus fully, is to have a really good idea of who Jesus is. In the presence of who Jesus is, we just kind of naturally fall down at his feet and go, man, I love you so much. So the author of Hebrews is going to make this kind of argument, and, but not only argue against the effects of heresy, but the argument must undermine the roots of heresy as well. 
The author is not content to simply say, this used to drive Tiffany and I crazy at youth camps. We would take kids, get all excited, or, or you know, get all the kids all excited, and we'd go to youth camp. And then the speaker would go, follow Jesus, because trust me, if you don't, it's bad. And we'd go, trust you, our kids haven't met you. So the author is not content to just say, bro, trust me, don't turn back to legalism. But rather, this is going to be an academic, theological argument, not only against the heresy that he is railing against, but of the underpinnings of that heresy. Our author would like to begin by dismantling those underpinnings, those pillars of legalism, like a lawyer making a case in a final argument, like an expert theologian in a debate. By the end of the book, there will be no quarter for anything but a pure-hearted worship of Jesus. And he's going to walk us through this argument step by step. So why start with angels? It does, from our vantage point, seems a, a strange place to start. From our tradition, it isn't at all obvious why it's so important to emphasize that Jesus is better than angels. I think you and I probably kind of take that for granted. What does this have to do with the Old Testament law that the people in the first century are tempted to go back to? To that first century faithful Jewish person, angels had everything to do with that. In the second temple period, and I re reference that a lot without explanation, so every once in a while i got to remind you, the second temple period is about 400 years. It's kind of the, the space in your Bible that there's no fresh word between Malachi and Matthew. It's, it's roughly when the people went back from Babylon and began uh, constructing the second temple, the one that, that Nebuchadnezzar had burned down a generation before. And then there's all of this writing and scholarship. And you think about the writing and scholarship that goes back 400 years from now. Like that's a wide breadth of thinking, understanding, development of ideas. So that second temple period goes from then through really through those, I mean, you, we in you know, church, we kind of call those the silent years. They were not, on the world stage, they were not silent years, like Aristotle's walking around. <laughs> they were far from silent. There's a lot of thought going on, and there's a lot of Jewish thought going on. In this time, closer to Jesus' life, Herod builds the temple that we see in the New Testament. So this is the second temple period. This is the the era that Jesus' ministry and right after found itself. The second temple period ends in 70 AD when the general Titus of Rome comes in and knocks down Herod's temple. So that's the, like the, the period that the New Testament is written in, but it's written at the end of that. So that's also the period that the New Testament writers are influenced by. So I always say it this way, like you're going to understand my preaching better if you've read a little C.S. Lewis. Now I'm going to try like to, to, I'll even quote C.S. Lewis today, but I'm, I, I, I try not to be like, you know, Narnia, but, but seriously, there are some things that in a Christian community, we, I could kind of go, well, it's like Billy Graham taught, and you guys would all kind of go, yeah, we have some context for that. We know that he was a really influential person recently that has influenced Christian thought right now. That's the way the writers of the Second Temple period were to all of the people that wrote your Bible. They were the influential theologians just before Jesus and around Jesus' time. So a lot of the, uh, one of the big ideas that had developed in that time was that angels were the mediators of the law. 
that angels were the means that God used to give Moses the Old Testament law. And that's not without um, merit that you can get there in Old Testament scriptures. I don't read it, obviously, in Old Testament scriptures, but, but this is just what they believed. And it's even in your New Testament. Twice, once, uh, maybe four times, but uh, especially once in Acts and then in Galatians, there are lines in your New Testament that, ju that just say, this is like when the angels gave the law to Moses. So this was the understanding. So if we're going to say the Old Testament law is good, but it's inferior to Christ, one of the things we have to do is say, look, the law was given in an inferior way. Christ is better, a better mediator of God's word than the angels that gave Moses the law. So the argument doesn't start with the merits of the law, but with the inferiority of the delivery system of the law. Angels mediated the law. Jesus is a better mediator. And so before we read even the first um, verse in our, our passage today, maybe we ought to skip to the end and, and think about some application so we can be thinking about it as we go. I mean, it, if this is only meaningful in the first century, we should just read it and go, wow, it looks like Jesus is great. Amen. I mean, has anybody invited you to the angel worship church? You know, pro probably not. Um, but the supremacy of Jesus is still a first things point in our culture. It couldn't be more relevant to know that Jesus is superior to every other spiritual thing. For while it might not be angels expressly, or even the Old Testament law that we can be drawn to, um, people do run to a long list of things and worship them that are inferior to Jesus. You've heard the idea that all roads lead to the top of the same mountain, that all religions teach roughly the same thing. Guys, that's not true. The truth claims of Christianity are completely different than the truth claims of other world religions. It's a, it's a very flawed version to say Jesus is just one among many. There's a lot of great spiritual leaders. We shouldn't approach people with contempt who have that idea, but we should understand that that is not an idea that gels with your scriptures. Or maybe you hear people say things, I hear celebrities frequently say things like, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person. And, you know, I've even had that thought myself. Religion gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. It's weird. I'm a very religious person. But religion without Jesus can go so, or without sweet-hearted relationship with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus, it can go so bad so quickly. It can turn into abuse and neglect and power and the whole thing so, so quickly that I have felt myself looking for ways to articulate what I am without using the word religious. I, I'm 50 now. I think I can say religious. But... Um, <laughs> but this is a, a huge sentiment because I think we live in a world where while people are uncomfortable submitting to Christ, there's also undeniably some non-physical part of me to be spiritual, to understand there's something greater, some transcendent thing, some existential conversation to be had. Well, this is everywhere in our culture. 
Religious practices connecting us to ourselves or the universe or the earth or nature, people cling to them and it's tempting for us to go back and cling to them. Or even cultural Christianity, the traditions, our culture, the way we do things around here. It's pretty easy to go back to these things. As the author of Hebrews argues for the superiority of Jesus over angels, the same case could be made for any object of worship. Jesus is better than your hobbies. Jesus is better than your job. Jesus is better than your status. Jesus is better than your favorite celebrity, team, politician. And let's not forget that there is spiritual power behind each of those. But it is foolish to say, I get it, Jesus is better than the angels. It has more wisdom to say, Man, I need to understand the superiority of Jesus over and above everything that I might worship. So we start in verse 4. Having become as much superior, so talking about Jesus, uh, to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I mean, if you read that slowly, that's a curious sentence. Jesus has become something? Wasn't Jesus eternally Jesus? Wasn't Jesus always better than the angels? How has he become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited than theirs? And what is this about Jesus inheriting? What's going on here? What name did Jesus not have in the Old Testament and then inherited in his earthly ministry? Well, some people have suggested that the name of Jesus is Yahweh. And that's true. Jesus is Yahweh. But um, we wouldn't say that he was less that in the Old Testament. No, that's not something he inherited in his earthly work on the cross and the, and the resurrection. Others have said, well, it's, it's, it's Kurios. It's Lord. This is the name. And there's some merit to that. But look, verse Five makes it pretty clear. Look at verse five. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father and he shall be to me a son. See, here's the thing. Angels are created. Jesus is begotten. And that is a huge difference. And let me see if I can explain it a little bit. This is something that has been rooted in the creeds of our faith since the very beginning. The Nicene Creed, you'll remember, says, Jesus, the only son of God, begotten, not created. Anything else that you might worship is created. As a beginning, you're enjoying it now. It'll rust, rot, get boring, die, or leave you. Jesus, the only begotten, not created Son of God, is different. C.S. Lewis, told you, in mere Christianity, explained begotten, like this, he says, begotten means to bring into the world something that is the same nature. So parents, moms and dads, beget little humans. When you say, oh, do you know what it is? Nobody ever says, a puppy. Humans beget humans. 
Little uh, beavers beget little beavers, C.S. Lewis says. Birds beget eggs, which become little birds. When a man creates a statue, C.S. Lewis said, I was thinking in our time, we might think when a, when the, the, the like sentient robots of every like uh, sci-fi movie. When a man creates something, it can look an awful lot like a man. He might be an excellent sculptor, an excellent builder, and it might look a lot like even him, but it has been created by that man, not begotten. Jesus was not created by God. Jesus was begotten by God. Jesus has the same nature. He is the same kind. Jesus is God. When we speak of God, we speak of him as our creator. Jesus just said, Dad, Abba. We cry out, Abba, because we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, shares His nature. Jesus is God. This is meaningful. You want to hear some big dorky words? Okay, this is ontologically meaningful and teleologically meaningful. Ontology means what kind of thing something is. What's it made of? Teleological means what's it for? What does it do? What's its function? When we say that Jesus is begotten, we confess that He is ontologically God. He is the same nature of, as God. You can't claim that about the angels, and you certainly can't claim that about us. The name that Jesus inherited, I can't, it's like wells me up with tears. This is so beautiful. The name that Jesus inherited, the name that he earned in his physical ministry on earth was the name Son. Now we would say, looking from our direction backwards, that Jesus was eternally the Son of God. That Jesus' role didn't change. That he is the second person of the Trinity in eternity past, just as in eternity future. And yet there was a unique role that he took in Bethlehem that he fulfilled at Golgotha that was the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is God. What are you worshiping? (laughs) Where's your time go? Where's your money go? Where's your attention go? What is it you're worshiping? Is it God? And that the ramifications of that are all over the place. You know, sons are different than any other relationship. Sons, and I would say sons and daughters. Friends are great, but they aren't your children. Coworkers are awesome, but they're not sons. Sons represent their fathers in a way that a friend doesn't. So in what sense did Jesus inherit that name? And what's that mean for us? Back, could, can you think back for a minute about the, the famous words in Psalm 8 that kind of give us a hierarchy of things? Oh God, 
What is man that you would be mindful of him? You've created him a little lower than the angels. So there's this, this there, and it's all about ontology. It's all about like what kind of thing we are. We're talking about only all spiritual things. Like we are physical, but we are also spirit. So God and angels and mankind. And the psalmist says, God, you've created us a little lower than the angels. But Hebrews wants us to think about this. When Jesus took on flesh at the incarnation and through his work on the cross and the resurrection, as he conquers death, as there's victory over Satan in the fulfilling of the covenants, as there's, as there's uh, payment for sin and in the ascension of Jesus, as he takes his place in the heavenly realm, Jesus is still fully human and fully God and is eternally reigning on high. Now look, this will blow your mind. This is like two o'clock in the morning with your buddies in a dorm room kind of stuff, but there is currently a human reigning on high. Jesus is eternally the God-man. That wasn't true in the psalmist's time, but now there is a human reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, being our mediator, representing us before the throne. A high priest, we'll get there in Hebrews soon, a high priest who knows what it's like to be human. It cost Jesus so much to be the Son, the only begotten Son of God. In His humanity, He inherited what was rightfully His as God, and that is the throne of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, your Lord and boss and Savior. So the big idea the first big idea in our section is that Jesus is better than the angels because he is, again, ontologically different. He has a different nature. He's a different kind than the angels. And, and that goes for any other thing you might worship. Other gods are of, not of the same nature as God. If, if, um, if there's a lure to other kinds of religious experiences, you know, there, there, there might be inklings of truth. There might be some words about love. There might be some, like, encouragement to to let go of some stuff and be a good person and all of that. But, but if you're not worshiping God, then you're not worshiping God. And Jesus is the only begotten Son, the only one who is God. Stuff, jobs, organizations, religious organizations, civic organizations, political organizations, recreational organizations, they're just temporary they're not worthy of our worship. The second big idea is that Jesus is better than the angels in function. Not only is Jesus' nature unique in the universe, but so is his role. What he does is unique in the universe. Angels are spiritual beings like God, and so are we. We are spiritual beings as well. But we aren't all the same kinds of things. Thinking, and I think we get into this. We kind of have this like, so there's God and his angels, and then there's Satan and his demons, and then they're like fighting over stuff. And so like there's one of them sitting here, and there's one of them sitting here, and they're both like, you should totally do it. Nah, probably not. And then we work it out. To assume that all spiritual things are the same thing is as foolish as thinking all physical things are the same kind of thing. Okay, I know this is silly. Who owned a pet rock? I claim the 90s because music was great and that's where I like came of age, but I remember the 70s. And um, 
<clears throat> and a pet rock, the joke kind of was that uh, you like dress it up and you give it a bed and you call it Fido and you go, come here, Fido, and you treat it like it's a pet, but it never turns in to a hamster or a dog or a cat because no matter what you call it, no matter how you treat it, it doesn't change the kind of thing it is. The fact that a dog is a physical thing and a pet rock is a physical thing does not make them the same kind of thing. Thinking that all spiritual things are the same kind of thing is as foolish. That's a little like saying, I don't follow Jesus, but I'm into spiritual things. So you, like you, you just bought a pet rock and are calling it, you know, Cooper the dog? That's not, that's not the best thing. Like, a pet rock is fine. I guess you could like a pet rock. We're humans. We can make ourselves fall in love with anything, but... But you can't have the same kind of relationship as you can with a pet animal. And I know this is a silly analogy that I've now taken too far. But um, <laughs> is it possible to have, to, to worship something spiritual? Sure, they're real. But it's inferior. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And no other spiritual entity is. You can worship other gods or you can go deep down in your own soul. You know, really in America, America's not right, Western civilization, modern life, what do you want to call it? Place where we spend too much money on sports and video games, whatever our, our culture is. Um, I think our own self is the biggest competitor for worship with Jesus. The thing I really want to worship is Grant. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the only begotten son of God. <laughs> I am an inferior object of worship. So there are a lot of spiritual beings. There's only one son, crucified, resurrected, alive, ruling, and inviting you into eternal life. My friends, behold Jesus. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is a great point, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. Over and over, from start to finish, angels are worshipers. Jesus is the only one deserving of worship. And the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, all the way to Revelation, we see that this is what angels do. They worship God. Let us not worship them, the author of Hebrews would say, but rather let us worship with them. Verse 7, of the angels, he has said, he makes his angels winds of his and his ministers a flame of fire. So now we learn more about the angels uh, teleologically, what they do, what is their function in the world. And we learn that they are not the king, they are the king's servants. In fact, they are somehow involved in God's uh, ruling over nature. He makes them flames and he makes them winds. So in some way, they are mediators of God's bidding in the natural world. This, is, this line is a quote from Psalm 104. It's a beautiful song about the majesty of God, of God's control over nature. So at least one of the functions of angels is to insert God's control, not their own, over nature. They are God's servants. And, and as I'm thinking, I go, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus the servant of God too? 
Like, didn't he serve God? So is that a similarity between him and the angels? And I would remind us that he served more fully and perfectly than anyone. But sons and servants are different. It's a different role, a different thing. You, you might have a couple of young men working out in a field. And they might both be just sweaty in the heat of the day and working hard. One of them is a trusted servant and the other one is a trusted son. Only one of those guys is inheriting the farm. Sons and even great servants are different. There's only one son of God who is God himself, self-same nature as God the Father. And that is Jesus. Let's worship him and worship him alone. Um, verse 8, this is why verse 8 continues and says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay, so this is a quote from Psalm 45, a royal psalm. Uh, and Hebrews uh, now would like to remind us of Jesus' role. Of angels, you do not say things like throne. God, forever, upright kingdom, righteous, anointed. In fact, I would like you, isn't this the kind of verse, like it's a very beautiful, Hebrews is just very beautiful literature. And so you read this kind of verse and go, oh, that is so beautiful. But then you pull it apart and go, verse eight and nine is a little weird. Look at it again. Try to keep track of who's God. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, who's, who's God? The Son, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is all true of the Son. On the throne, scepter of power is righteousness and uprightness and, and you know, perfect, loving king sitting on the throne of the universe. Therefore, God, your God, who, who's God's God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, God the Son has been anointed, chosen, uh, set apart by his God. What a beautiful Trinitarian passage. Here we see. And also, remember, this is, this is a quote from Psalm 45. You think, oh, the Trinity is just a New Testament invention. No, this is an Old Testament idea. That God the Son and God the Father would be working together. That God the Father would, would anoint and enthrone God the Son uh, over the universe. Like, I even think, I mean, I can't get my head around that. I'm just, a, you know, I went to Garden Grove High School. We didn't talk about that. Um, um, and and, and I, I, it's, it, it, that's a difficult concept. But I do go, look, in my limited understanding, I get to the limits of my understanding and find the awe of God and go, what would I do with this except fall at his feet? Who is like our God, the royal God, the most high? 
Verse 10 tells us what Jesus has done. This is quoting Psalm 102. You see all of this argument of the the author of Hebrews like saying, this is not a new thing. I'm not bringing you some heresy that rejects the Old Testament. I'm showing you what was there all along. Now, please open to Psalm 102, the author says. And verse 10 in Hebrews 1 says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands, and they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will uphold them. Or I'm sorry, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. It is Jesus, the Son, who has laid the very foundation of the earth. You know, I've, I've heard some talk about this as like, you know, uh, revealing an ancient cosmology. These people thought that the earth had literal physical foundations. And I go, ah, you don't even have to read your Bible for that. Read your Greeks. No, they didn't think the foundation of the earth was physical they thought the foundation of the earth was the logos that the earth was founded on logos is a beautiful word when we've been in john i've explained it before but but greeks used logos to to denote the logic the reason at the base of the universe that it was all built on logic they saw order as the foundation um, Hebrews, the, the, in Jerusalem, they would teach that same concept, but they called it the wisdom of God. So they would translate Old Testament word for wisdom, chokmah, they would translate that into logos. So, so it, it's this, that the wisdom of God was the foundation of the world. And so don't, be, don't read this and go, these silly ancients thought the world has a foundation. So do you. You might call it like the laws of physics. Or you, you may call it like Aristotelian reason. But we too believe that there are brute facts in the universe that I don't know why gravity pulls at exactly that rate. I don't, I don't know why quantum stuff does what quantum stuff do. But I know that there's an ordered universe. I know that there are laws that the Hebrews would have called wisdom, the Greeks would have called logic, and you and I might call physics that are the foundations of the universe. The universe doesn't exist without them. And if those laws are there, there's a lawgiver. And Hebrews says, that's Jesus. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? They are not all ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who... uh, I'm sorry, are they not all uh, ministering spirits sent out for the... Uh, to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. This footstool stuff is interesting. In general, there are times in the Psalms where earth is God's footstool, but also the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was referred to the footstool of God. So of what angel ever deserved to be above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant? What angel would the earth be his footstool? Guys, these are different things completely. We can get on the internet or hop on the television and we can start thinking that Jesus is one among many. We can start thinking that really there isn't much a difference. And look, if I say that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him, and that engenders in this room even a drop of arrogance, we have missed the point entirely. Rather, 
knowing that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life, that he is the foundation of the universe, that he is the only begotten son of God, and that most people are sitting around coffee shops going, well, he's really one among many, and have you studied Eastern this, and have you studied Muslim that, and have you studied this, there are all these beautiful ideologies. Look, the rejection of Jesus as the one true Savior is heartbreaking, not angering. It should fill us with missionary zeal. Not to win arguments, but rather to hit our knees in prayer. To live out lives that demonstrate a life with Christ in such a way that who could deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Aren't angels all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Oh, anytime you see the word inherit twice in a sentence or in a passage, that's interesting. Jesus has inherited the name son. We have inherited uh, um, the kingdom with him. It's pretty beautiful. Maybe it isn't angels by name that we're tempted to worship. Although I, I tell you, in parts of the world it is. But this, the Jewish idea of worship is pretty simple. You know, I, I say this a lot, but we've, we have narrowed down the um, definition of worship to a place that would just boggle the mind of the people that wrote your scriptures. Um, this idea that worship is just something we do on Sundays or worship is a piece of our life. Oh, I worship for a little while each morning or my wife and I worship as we pray in the evenings or, or you know, I mean, that's just the, the people who wrote your scriptures would go, that's bonkers. What are you talking about? No, worship is sacrificing for, you are worshiping that for which you sacrifice. So as you spend time in worry, as you spend time in uh, striving, as you spend time in spending, as you spend time in uh, sacrificing your resources for the sake of something else you are worshiping. Why would we worship what is not God? Why would we define ourselves to the world as people who worship a cultural perspective or a certain lifestyle or whatever? Jesus is not one among many. Faith in Jesus is not the same as faith in other things. Sacrifice to Jesus is not like sacrifice to other things. Sacrifice to other things, the biblical word for that is idolatry. And I, here's how idolatry works. Idol, it's not that idolatry doesn't work either. Like, you know, pick your idol. It could feel good for a while. But idolatry always asks more and more and more and more and more of you and gives less and less and less and less and less to you. So make an idol of your career, and in your 20s, it's very fulfilling. But then you don't see old men looking back and going, man, I sure am glad that I gave up my, you know, my relationship with the Lord for the sake of my career. It didn't lead to the satisfaction of my heart. Even good things. I mean, your career can be a very good thing. But even good things. Your spouse, I've told you before, um, Tiffany makes a wonderful wife. I make a at least average husband. But we make 
terrible gods for each other. If I was to have gone back and said, I included in the wedding vows and I worship you, you know, and there's lots of sacrifice in family too. Like, of course, dude, you can't play golf seven times a week. It's just dumb. Um, there's there's going to have to be some sacrifice. But as you do that and as you sacrifice so that you will be satisfied and find your identity and find your purpose in your spouse, you will find that over the years, it's harder and harder and harder and harder and you get less and less and less out of it. On your honeymoon, you were like, you're all I'll ever need. You get 10 years in and go, I might need something else. <laughs> of course, vices are like that. If you are gripped in the hold of addiction to anything, you know full well. Super exciting and fulfilling and enriching day one. Oh, that first time a bet landed and you were like, I just made $1,000, woo! And as you go, it requires more and more and more and more of you and it gives less and less and less satisfaction to you. It's not that everything else is bad and Jesus is good. It's that Jesus is the one and only Son of God worthy of worship. The only one who says, come and worship me. My burden is light. You'll like it. There's joy here. There's peace here. In fact, I think, I look around the room and I see some of you mature saints and I go, mature meaning, you know, you're old. And, um, <clears throat> and, and, and I think, I know that your story, because you've told me, has been, it was hard to serve Jesus at first. I gave my life to Jesus, but there was some stuff that had to go. And as I've gone, it's been more and more and more joyful. I've gotten more and more and more out of it. Is Jesus getting your time? Is Jesus getting your money? Is Jesus getting your attention? Is Jesus the one you worship? With your thought life with your resources. Are, are we just like, we have just found the most epic pet rocks ever? Here, at the end of the, let's just sing a song together and I'll close, but at the end of it, here's the deal. You don't have a choice. You're a worshiper. You're going to give yourself to something. You're designed for it. You're going to give yourself to the worship of yourself. You're going to give yourself to the worship of something. Don't go back to what you used to worship. Jesus is better. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for the gift of your Son, and Lord, thanks for the gift of your Son. Jesus, thank you for your work in inheriting the name that is above all names. Lord, we confess that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that, that there is no way to the Father, there is no way to the good life in heaven eternally, but even the good life here and now, there is no way except through you. Lord, would you continue to draw us? Some of us have been following you a long time, but it's gotten tiring. There's been frustration. There's been disappointments. And Lord, it's just tempting to go back to worship you know, worship intellectualism or, or worship, you know, our old hobbies or whatever it might be. 
Lord, I think I'm going to pray this at the end of every sermon in Hebrews. Lord, would you so take up our field of vision that we would behold you in truth and know of your majesty and glory that we might not waste our time worshiping what is not you. I love you, God. Lord, if there's somebody in the room who needs to turn to you right now, has been worshiping other things, lesser gods, lesser, um, you know, things with a lesser nature than you. Lord, I pray that right now might be a moment of repentance, that, that they might turn from that. Lord, maybe somebody would come to you for the first time now and say, God, I'm in. I want to follow you. I reject everything else and I'm following you. Lord, may today be the day of their salvation for some of us that have been on the road for a long time, following you for a long time, need encouragement. God, would you encourage and may this be a moment of, of, uh, of confession. Lord, yeah, I've, I've gone back a little bit. I've, I've started picking up old idols. Lord, I reject those and I follow you and you alone. And Lord, would you bring joy and peace into our lives as we do that? I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.